Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ellen Cassidy. Ellen is the author of We Are Here, Memories of the Lithuanian Holocaust, a prize-winning account of her journey into her family's past in Lithuania and how Lithuania today is encountering its Jewish cultural history. She was a co-translator with Jeremy Yahoo, Aaron Taub of Oedipus in Brooklyn and Other Stories with um, by Bluma Lampel, which won the Yiddish Book Center's Translation Prize in 2012. Ellen was a fellow in the Yiddish Book Center Translation Program in 2015-2016, where she translated the work of the late Yiddish writer Yenta Mosh, for which she received a Penheim Award and a Hadassah Brandeis Fellowship for her work on Yenta Mosh. Welcome, Ellen. Hello. Great to be here. Uh, it's always a real pleasure to have a chance to visit with you, especially because it's occasioned by your latest translation of Yenta Mosh, a collection of stories titled On the Landing. And uh, I have to say, once again, you sort of found your way, I think it's safe to say, a lesser-known Yiddish writer, um, in this case, Yenta Mosh. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you came to her work and about the writer herself. Okay. Um, well, first of all, let me start with how I came to Yiddish, just a few words right. about that. Um, my mother was Jewish, and she was the daughter of an immigrant from Lithuania, and she used to, she didn't actually speak Yiddish, but she used to pepper her, her conversation with Yiddish words, like in the kitchen, she'd say, hand me that shistle, a bowl, or she'd stand at the window on a rainy day and say, a plocha, which means a downpour. And she died rather young, and I found myself missing these little whiffs of the old world and the Eastern European Jewish culture that I'd been brought up to respect. My father was not Jewish, but um, he had deep respect for Jewish culture and especially secular Jewish culture. And so I decided I would study Yiddish as a memorial to my mother, and I signed up for a class and started studying, and quickly decided that I wanted to become a translator. And that, I think, had something to do with the fact that I love English. I was brought up at a, in a family where discussing word usage was like one of the most important things. And how do you spell this? And what does this exactly mean? And what's the difference between this word and that word? And so on. This is very good training for a translator. So um, I was looking around for a project to become a translator in the Yiddish Book Center Translation Fellowship Program, and a fellow Yiddish translator had, bless her soul, made up a list of uh, women, work by women in Yiddish that remained to be translated. So I went through this list quickly. I sort of used the Yiddish Book Center uh, digital collection to scan a lot of, just skim through a lot of this work. And I was very, very drawn to the work of Yenta Mash, which is M-A-S-H, Mash, um, because uh, it seemed like very fine literature, and it is autobiographical. So I learned a tremendous amount about little-known corners of Jewish life in the second half of the uh, 20th century and the um, and the beginning of the 21st century that I, I just never knew um, how, for example, how women in the Siberian labor camps got along with each other and how they survived, what it was like to uh, arrive on the shores of Israel in the 1970s and make your way into that very different society coming out of the Soviet Union, 
um, I'm always uh, up for more details about the world of the, the lost world of the shtetl in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, and especially from the point of view of women. And this is what we learned from Yentemash. She was born in a tiny uh, shtetl, a small town in uh, what was then called Bessarabia, which is near Romania. It doesn't exist anymore. It's now in Moldova, which is a, a country to the east of, of Romania. Um, and she was born in 1922. In uh, 1941, she was deported with her parents and other Jews from the area and other, some other bourgeois elements, so-called, to Siberia, and she remained there for seven years doing hard labor and almost starving. And then she made her way back to um, Kishinev, which is the capital then of Soviet Moldavia, as it was then called, and lived there until the 70s, kind of as an undocumented person. Uh, she was afraid to write. She was afraid to speak up. And it was only in the 1970s when she immigrated to Israel that she began to write, and it, her work just came pouring out and was immediately recognized. She won all kinds of prizes in Israel. And she really, I think of her as a, a master chronicler of exile. She really um, takes her place alongside other writers about immigration and about forced migration about people who find themselves in new places, uh, always you know, bringing their past with them, trying to establish a place in a new land. And her characters are very, very resourceful, very resilient. They land on their feet. And I think this is, this is something we need to know about today when there's so much, uh, so many people are displaced in our, in our world. So many people across the globe are seeking refuge. And these are experiences we need to know about. That was a great preface because you packed a lot in there. Um, you know, the first thing I'm going to give a nod to is um, I love the description of your family wrestling over words, something that was near and dear in my family. Um, I still have mm -hmm. fond memories of my father, who was a writer, sending me to the dictionary all the time and going back and forth, which explains, I mean, uh, I, I want to ask you how you find the voice because these read so seamlessly and, and they just feel as though you're reading them in the original, which I guess in literary trans for a literary translator, that's what you want to hear, I hope. Um, be, uh, and it must be because you are so good at parsing out what that word would be. Well, uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to the Yiddish Book Center Translation Fellowship Program. This is a program where 10 translators are chosen each year to work with really experienced veteran translators from around the country on um, work, and my project was the work of Yenta Mash. Now, I was very surprised when I joined this program to find that the mentors and the workshop leaders, these veteran translators, didn't know Yiddish. I thought, how can this be? How can they advise me? And then I realized that this was completely by design, that really your your loyalty as a translator has to be to your target readers, your target language, English. And so when we would sit around in our fascinating, intense little groups and discuss each other's translations, uh, a lot of times we, Yiddish translators, would miss something like the use of the word already popping up in the middle of every sentence. But the teacher would say, wow, what's this word doing here? 
And so we'd look at each other and we'd say, well, you know, shoin, that everyone, that's the way Yiddish works. And he'd say, but we're not writing Yiddish now. We're writing English. And so that loyalty to making it work in English um, was really pounded into us in the translation program. And I really have to thank my, all my teachers for that. Um, and yes, I think, uh, uh, let me say about this voice in particular, um, I had done other translations before. Um, as you mentioned, I was a translator of work by Bluma Lempel, very, very different writer. This writer, um, she, her sentences are very dense. She's, uh, her language is full of regionalisms from Bessarabia, expressions that nobody knew, and I had to go searching all over the place to find out what they meant. Um, but also, she, she really she had a life in which she was constantly being thrown into new situations with new languages and in changing times when new words were being invented. For example, in Siberia, you had the Siberians, you had the, the Soviet structure, you had Jews from all over speaking different languages. So there was a friction of all these different languages coming together and the need for new terms to describe new circumstances. What do you call your boss in the, the snowy forest where you're chopping down trees? Um, what do you call the, the special settlement that you've been sent to? What do you call the, the shack you're living in? And the, um, the garlic, the wild garlic that you encounter in the field that you're scrounging for to supplement your diet. Um, and then in Israel, a, a brand new country, a modern country, which is dealing with an ancient language they're trying to rest into the 20th century. Um, so she, one of the challenges of translating a writer like that is that you have to give a sense for the English language reader of that friction, that, that mix and mess of languages coming in contact with each other. And you have to do that subtly so that um, uh, it doesn't stand out too much, but it stands out just enough that so that the uh, just like the reader of the Yiddish original would think, hmm, that's kind of an odd word there, or hmm, I can see how that character was a little uh, upset by that word being used. You have to get that into English, and that was challenging and uh, very enjoyable to, to try to put that together. These are really strong, strong stories. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, she's writing these many years after the experience. Is that correct? Yes. She didn't start writing until she was in her 50s mm -hmm. in the 1970s. So do you sense what she was trying to work out in the writing? Um, if that's the right, I mean, that may not be a yeah. fair way of putting it. She just may have used these experiences as a way to write or as the subject mm -hmm. for her stories. I think it, it's a great way of putting it. Um, and I think that in Israel, perhaps somewhat to her surprise, she was um, dealing with some of the same situations, the same type of situations she'd been dealing with all her life. First, as a girl of 19, she was sent into this completely new environment, Siberia, uh, with her mother, who ended up dying in the forest. She was separated from her father, who died in a, a men's labor camp. Um, she had to make her way with all of this, this sort of mix of people, um, and the, the French forged among the women there and the way they related to each other, she observes very, very closely. Uh, then she comes back to the Soviet Union 
and there the Jewish community, which is, has been cut in half by the deaths caused in Siberia and by the Nazis, uh, the Germans, um, this community is trying to put itself back together again under a new regime. And then in Israel, uh, there she is once again, um, dealing with whole new situations where it's so unfamiliar that she's a, a woman in the second half of her life, and her grandchildren know more about how to make their way around the country than she does, and which is very disconcerting. And a number of the stories deal with that uh, situation of older people being led by the young to how to how do you do this? How do you live in this country? So I think she um, she was kind of gra- uh, grappling with the the immigrant experience, the experience of being a, on the landing, as the title of the collection is on the landing people are always on their way somewhere they're just arriving they're just departing um i guess i could talk about one story which is called bread oh it's such an amazing <laughs> story <laughs> sorry yeah no. so it it's uh she's in israel the frame of the story is she starts out looking out the window on the morning in in an israeli city and thinking back to her time in uh, the Gulag during World War II when she was on the bread line in these um, Siberian settlements. And um, she, it was a, a terrible, terrible time where she was starving. And um, she uh, talks about a memory from that time that she says, I have never told anyone this. Years and years have passed since those times, and I've never revealed this fact, which is a a horrible thing. Um, Her mother goes out into the forest to search for mushrooms and berries, and as she says, uh, people who did that had to keep their heads down looking at the ground, and they often got lost, and her mother disappeared into the forest and was never found. And so that evening, when she comes back from her forced labor in the forest, her mother is gone, she gathers everybody around her. They go out into the forest to try to find her mother. They come back empty-handed, and under her mother's pillow, she finds a crust of bread, and she eats it. And she says, I have never admitted that to anyone until I wrote this story. And uh, I think, so I think, yes, I think she's, she's processing a whole lifetime of very tumultuous and painful memories, and yet comes out, I think, is a sense of survival and strength and admiration for the strength and survival of of all these people. Um, It's not a a feel-good book, I wouldn't say, but it's also um, not a depressing book, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's about how individuals um, make it and uh, carry on in the face of these huge forces of history. The, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I uh, it, it isn't depressing. I think that that's safe to say. Um, it's not easy work. It's beautifully told. And interesting to me that it also feels like there's some universality to the way that she's trying to work through these experiences because they were broader than just her experience. Um, or at least she alludes to the fact that, you know, there were others in the same situation. Um, exactly, yeah. I think that she, 
that's very close to how I feel about it. I feel that she gives you an intimate perch mm-hmm. from which to observe and explore this much wider, huge world. And that's what the best literature does. And, and one other thing that I was struck by in reading this, um, and I'm going to ask if I can read a short passage from alone to sort of illustrate this, but mm-hmm. it was um, what I saw as the narrator sort of back and forth internal dialogue with God and, and how she questions God and tradition and Jewishness um, in an effort to reason. W- w- that's how I perceived it, as an effort to mm-hmm. reason with all that was happening and to move forward with this sort of bridge between her past and how she is having to, you know, sort of move on to the next. And, and if I may, it, this is from the story alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, And I hope I get the pronunciation of her mother's name right. Forgive me if I don't, or correct me. (laughs) These uh, These days, Galia's mother is silent. She no longer sings the snatches of old theater songs as she used to, no matter how busy she was with the housework. Now she says little. What does her clever mother think about God and his judgment now, if indeed she thinks about him at all? And I wonder right. what that's telling us. I mean, there are other instances throughout the book. Um, but do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts of Yentamash's work is that she, um, her, her relationship to God, I think, is very tart and very um, intelligent. And she doesn't let God off the hook. She's skeptical, but... God is in the picture. Mm-hmm. She's not. God is not irrelevant. There is a God, and she's in dialogue with that God. And uh, there's another story called a Seder in the Taiga. The Taiga being the mm-hmm. um, the vast Siberian landscape, um, where women who have almost nothing put together a Seder for themselves, and they use a pine cone instead of an egg, and um, they use the berries from the ground instead of herosis, and um, they they throw something together, and um, they they really give to God. They don't just accept. They say, you know, what what were you thinking? Why did we upstanding kosher daughters of the faith get subjected to this terrible fate? And uh, why did we have to drain the dregs of the cup of suffering to the very bottom? Um, God, what? Why did you? Why did you do this? You're the all-powerful. What? What's up with you? Um, and I, I really love how um, there are these opposites that you have to keep in your mind. That there is a God, and that God matters, and you you really care about speaking to that God, and yet you're not passive. Um, you're not just sitting there waiting for God to bestow whatever's coming. You're an active resilient person and I I just adore that the way she brings that to life yeah it's funny my next um, questions to you are going to be about that story because I think it's a really good illustration and it's funny you say she doesn't it is a dialogue and she's not passive I was describing it to somebody the other day and talking about a few of the stories and saying it felt to me as though this dialogue she was not accepting the fact that she was weak or a victim it it almost gave her the resolve to figure out okay you're going to put this out there here's how i'm dealing with it but there's a real sort of jewish voice and resonance in that writing 
um, mm-hmm. and the statement sort of a fact and questioning, et cetera. In that story that you were just talking about, um, this line was great. Where is it written that matzah must be crisp and pale? Our matzah certainly <laughs> filled the bill for a Siberian, quote, bread of affliction, end quote. Um, and then the four <laughs> questions that come up in, you know, in that Seder are just, they're brilliant. Um where she again brings that relevance into into the present for her um they're all very very strong stories i wonder if there is one particular story that resonated with you or did you where did you start with the work um well i guess i would want to talk about the very first story which is called the bridegroom tree mm-hmm. which is a um a, a tree in her shtetl that was a place where um, uh, on the occasion of a wedding, the bride's family used to ride out to this tree that was standing in a field, and the groom's family would ride the tree, too, and that was where the, the wedding began. Um, so the bridegroom tree. Um, but the, the story begins with um, Esther, who's come back from Siberian exile and into the big city, and she decides to go visit this shtetl that she hasn't been to since seven or eight years before, before she was sent away. And she makes her way, uh, she takes a bus, and she ends up in this town, which is the town where Yenta Mash grew up, as a Guritza, it's called. And um, she gets off the bus, and she starts walking toward the scattering of small houses she can see in the distance. And fairly soon she finds herself in sort of a sea of weeds, and she starts discovering, oh, my goodness, Isaac Koisman's well that she can barely see, but it's covered with tall grass. And she bends back the stalks, and she steps toward the well, and she tries to crank, but it won't turn. And then she counts her steps, and she paces away from the well and finds the place where her own house had stood, and only the ruined cellar is there. And then there's the porch where her mother and her aunt used to sit on this stone railing uh, telling stories after their, their day of uh, housework. And for me, I just somehow felt so captivated by this, this trip into the past, sort of feeling your way into this, this overgrown landscape. And it felt like kind of a metaphor for me of what I was doing as a translator, feeling my way through this text and oh, look, here's this I can recognize, and here's that. And I'm touching this. I'm actually finding this thing. And it's there's a sense of joy, and there's a sense of tragedy. And that's the sort of introduction to this whole collection. Um, so that I feel very, very strongly about that story. Um, a quick last question for you, which is, did you find any similarities um, between the work of Lempel and Mosh? Great question. So Bloomer Lempel, um, whose stories I translated with Yermio Aaron Taub, um, she grew up, I think, like a couple-hour drive away from Yenta Mosh. They were very close in these very similar little shtetlach, little small towns. But, wow, are they ever different. Uh, Bloomer Lempel uh, went to Paris from her tiny little town, loved it, but then was uprooted from there and came to New York and wrote 
really pretty unhinged material. It's really uh, compelling, very strong, and it skirts the edges of madness, and the characters are often pretty crazy um, and isolated people who are struggling with an inner uh, discomfort and feeling of being unsettled, which mirrors the outside world. Yantamash, similarly uprooted again and again, sent to Siberia, then back to the Soviet Union, then Israel. Um, for her, I felt that the, the inner character of especially the women in her stories was very strong and solid. And it was the outside world's madness that she's talked about and, and how you stay on your feet during that. And I think Bluma Limpel talks about how a lot of people don't quite stay on their feet and are kind of ground under and, and very um, thrown for a loop by these huge, you know, by Hitler, by Stalin, by um, all these huge uh, geopolitical forces. And with Yentamash, you feel those forces very strongly. There's one story where um, the river Ob, Ob, um, which runs through Siberia, is described with tremendous uh, uh, accuracy. And you just feel the force of this river, like just bashing its way through the ice flows and upending trees and pulling cows into the stream and so on. And it's like life. It's like what she had to deal with over and over again, being battered by these forces, and yet coming out on her feet with her humor and her close skills of observation intact. Um, well, thank you again for bringing more work to those of us who can only read this work in, the, in English. <laughs> um, and uh, I look forward to uh, what's next. In the meantime, the book is coming out. Um, the publication date is upon us, yes? Yes, September 28th. And it's already available for pre-order. Mm -hmm. On the Landing, Stories by Yenta Mash. And it is also available uh, through the Yiddish Book Center's shop yiddishbookcenter.org. And you will be doing some readings in the upcoming months, correct? Yes, I will. Okay. And um, people can visit my website, ellencassidy.com, to find out all about them. Great. And we'll um, try to share your readings on our social media pages. Again, thank you so much. We hope to have you back at the center soon. And keep working. Thank you, Lisa. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Sarah Quiet, and I'm a new fellow assisting in the production of the podcast at the Center. I recommend listening to episode 106, Rediscovering the Vilna Vegetarian Cookbook, where Lisa Newman speaks with Eve Jochnovitz about how Eve came to translate Fania Levan-No's famous 1938 cookbook. Zeitgesend, and tune in again soon. <laughs>